Hello, coming to you from New York City, this is Disaster Politics, the podcast that explores the intersection of policy and legislation with disaster preparedness, response, and recovery. I'm your host, Jeff Slegamelch. All right, thanks for joining us today on Disaster Politics Podcast. We've got a great show for you today. We're joined by Eve Tro, who's got experience both as a local and a national journalist. And she's really going to help us understand kind of the role of journalism in disaster preparedness, response, and recovery coverage, uh, some of the challenges that it faces, um, and really how it, uh, you know, serves such an important role in terms of both telling the story as well as, uh, you know, holding uh, the various entities accountable that are responsible for the full continuum of emergency management. And I think we also get into some some great ideas into how community members in the emergency management community can also integrate better with, uh, with journalists in their in their jurisdiction, uh, as well as nationally. So uh, thanks for joining us today. Uh, We'll jump right into it, and we'll see you on the other side. All right, so joining me now is Eve Tro. Eve Tro is currently senior producer at Marketplace, the public radio outlet covering business and economics, where she recently joined the podcast division. She served as a reporter and senior editor on the Marketplace Sustainability Desk, guiding coverage of markets and policy around climate change, energy, and yes, disasters. Eve started the first public radio newsroom in New Orleans, which focused on reporting on education, criminal justice, and a coastal desk devoted to news around water issues. When Hurricane Katrina hit in 2005, she was living in New Orleans and reported on the city's recovery for three years after the storm. Eve, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. You know, you've got just such a, an interesting experience on the journalistic side and sort of covering disasters. Um, I wonder if you could start us out by just talking a little bit more about your background with disasters with Katrina and kind of your approach as a journalist and, and looking at uh, disasters and, and covering them. Yeah, sure. I mean, I've uh, worked as a reporter and then, you know, also gotten a view from coordinating coverage, being an editor and a producer. Um, but I was even thinking back to actually my first experience was probably where I grew up. I mostly grew up in a small town on the Mississippi River in Missouri that flooded a lot. And I have a really distinct memory of my grandmother's house starting to flood, the street flooding, and of my uncles passing myself and a few cousins uh, between each other to get us across the street to just a little hill that was across the street. So then there was a big flood there in 1993. And um, so in an odd way, when I was living in New Orleans, when Hurricane Katrina hit in 2005, I had lived in the city for a number of years and been through a few other smaller storms there, but never anything the size and scope of that. And I did actually evacuate for the storm. But um, it, it brought something home to me that, oh, right, I grew up with this sort of anxiety about flooding and controversies about infrastructure and the cost of things like building levees and uh, buyouts and relocating and things like that. So in some some ways, it's even deeper than Katrina for me. Uh, but it was living in New Orleans in 2005 and seeing what that storm did. Um, my home where I was living was not damaged, but I wasn't able to move back into it until about three months after the storm. So I wasn't ever and have never been really one of those journalists who stakes, who goes in the direction of uh, the disaster, you know, who's staking out what's going to happen and choosing a place to be there to cover the the big event of it when it's something that you know is coming. And then, you know, covering the search and rescue operations during and after the the dangerous event, that's not been something I focused on or that's been a big part of my work. It's mostly coming in, you know, weeks, months, years afterward and figuring out, you know, how how people have or haven't been able to pull their lives back together, how communities have or haven't been able to bounce back. Um, And so, yeah, that was Katrina was was the big one. And then lots more after that. (laughs) But um, I feel like in the in the field of of even of media 
that the way the recovery of Katrina was portrayed in the media was also uh, um, just really telling, you know, living there and pitching stories to national outlets, but then also working with local outlets to improve coverage there was really big. And I've worked in radio pretty much my whole career. So it's mostly been through that medium. Um, but when I came to work at Marketplace as a reporter, I've, I've covered, again, from afar and mostly the aftermath of a lot of other storms like Hurricane Isaac, Hurricane Gustav. Um, the BP oil spill was something I did a lot of work on. Um, in 2009, the station fire, one of the major wildfires mm-hmm. here in California, I did a long piece on a couple who were coming back to their uh, cabin in the San Gabriel Mountains after that storm, after that fire, rather. And then um, as the leader of a local newsroom in New Orleans, we had a few you know, tropical storm warnings. It's sort of this almost like a ritual of covering a storm's formation and the approach of it. And then we had uh, these major floods in Baton Rouge, that happened in 2017 that were just, you know, so, or 2016 rather, <laughs> those major form storms and then this rainstorm that just sat and drenched mm-hmm. Baton Rouge with, you know, more than a hundred inches of rain in the course of a really short amount of time. And then watching the conversations that felt really important to have between people in Baton Rouge who had experienced that and people in the New Orleans area who'd experienced Katrina, you know, many of which had moved to Baton Rouge Mm -hmm. after that storm. So it just seemed like there were some important conversations there to, to be had and, um, being able to foster those conversations between communities to kind of be a conduit for sharing experiences and knowledge and to, in some ways, uh, get better at both informing the public and, and, creating better conversation around disaster recovery is something that has kind of evolved for me as a, as a mission in journalism is something that I think media needs to do a better job of. Yeah. And I I know it's something we've uh, had some conversations about as well too. And and I know you were part of a panel at the the school of journalism at Columbia with the national center for disaster preparedness, sort of on this topic of covering recovery. And it's interesting. You mentioned the, the Baton Rouge floods, because that was one um, I know we were uh, involved with as well too, and um, actually, our director, uh, Dr. Erwin Redliner, wrote a um, an op-ed with the uh, a state public health officer, um, something along the effects of like uh, uh, the need goes on as coverage, or, or there's an ongoing need while the media moves on, and sort of talking mm-hmm. about this whole, you know, people are in this long-term cycle of recovery with very kind of short-term coverage, and how it it often starves uh, or has the potential to starve the the recovery of the needed attention that is for uh, both promotes um, fundraising and donations and mm-hmm. political um, movement to to get resources there. Um, but I, I guess speaking more broadly too, is, is this something that you see, like what do you see as sort of the role of the journalist in this um, uh, sort of covering recovery from disasters? Sure. I mean, if you take those floods in Baton Rouge in 2016 as an example, I think there are different roles journalists play. I mean, at the local level, you're getting people very much needed information, you know, information about what's going to happen, um, what they should do in preparation, what's going to be closed, government offices, schools, you know, really practical, straightforward information um, before an event comes and then during it, helping people understand, especially in the case of that one, what the risk really is that this is something different than we thought it was going to be, that the danger is greater and uh, is spread out differently than than we thought. Um, and here's how officials are reacting to that. Here's how communities are reacting to that. Um, you know, and then in the aftermath, really basic information about shelters, about resources, you know, drumming home, the phone numbers for FEMA and the Red Cross and any number of other agencies that people might need or want to be in touch with. So on the local level, that the need and the mission, I think, is pretty straightforward in the immediate event um, leading up to and immediately after. I think longer term, it's really hard for local outlets to 
uh, navigate what's happening in those three to six months, six months to a year, year to two years or five years after an event. You know, it's it's harder for local journalists who are going to be back to the grind of daily news to keep their eyes on all right, well, is the Department of Housing and Urban Development, you know, doing what it said it was going to do? Are those community development block grants flowing? Um, what's going on with national policy around flood insurance? And then how is that affecting the ways that families are being able to recover in my community? Um, you know, what's going on with Congress? Did we get that second round of congressional appropriations for recovery of this federally declared disaster? You know, local journalists are not necessarily, um, they're not in Washington. They're mm-hmm. not covering the agencies that way. And and sometimes they're not really um, getting a, a good picture or don't have a way to get a full picture of even what's supposed to happen. So it's hard to hold agencies at the, at the local, state, and federal level because all three of those are involved in any uh, big disaster recovery. It's hard to hold them accountable because you don't really necessarily know you know you're just getting a snapshot of what your experience is as one place you don't necessarily know what's supposed to happen or how things went in other places and um it can be easy to to get take your eyes off of that bigger picture of longer term recovery um yeah on the national level i i think i think it's a really good question what we're really trying to do um like at, at a show like Marketplace or any national outlet, you know, the the national importance of a disaster is often framed just by the amount of damage it's going to cause. Obviously, any loss of life, major loss of property, major damage or loss of infrastructure, uh, any sort of historic element to it, if it's the first one in 100 years or 500 years or or, you know, proximity, if it's the second one in two years. Um, things that stand out that are that are sort of remarkable and um, that that make it, you know, quote unquote, newsworthy. And then, you know, honestly, after the first couple weeks of something happening on a national level, you know, usually the national reporters go home and then you, you probably aren't even going to hear anything until the one year mark mm-hmm. and maybe around the one year mark. You know, someone will point out, oh, hey, the one year mark is coming and, oh, let's, you know, brainstorm some story ideas around that. And um, I mean, those can be those can be really great stories, too, because you say, okay, here's what people said was going to happen versus here's what has really happened. Here's here are the challenges people face that they didn't understand they were going to face. But, you know, the role the role of the media in terms of getting information to people is key and then the role of the media that I think we could do a little bit better of shouldering is um, helping helping the community at large, I guess helping our nation, helping the world understand um, whether we're making any progress on this front. You know, are we, are we improving policies? Are we improving mechanisms and systems uh, for people to, to come back more easily to some sense of normality, um, and then are we are we really doing a good job of measuring the total impact of all these events together, and what what they might mean for how we might need to be planning and thinking and appropriating funds and structuring departments differently? You know, it's uh, it's really interesting too. I think um, how you're breaking apart, you know, the local journalist and sort of the role there to serve the community and describe what's going on and. In some cases, that's inward facing with, uh, you know, how to stay safe, where the resources are, that transitions into what's the state of recovery, and then uh, really national journalism and sort of widening the lens and providing some national framing of this and sort of accountability at the higher levels and maybe even bringing more proximity to D.C. and proximity to the recovery policy process and an expertise mm-hmm. there, although maybe a shorter, uh, with more distance comes more distance from it. So um, in my own mind, I think I, I probably often oversimplify, um, you know, thinking about journalism as sort of a, as one thing, but actually there's uh, different reporters at different levels kind of providing different uh, perspectives to different audiences on all of this. 
Um, I know mm-hmm. you touched a little bit on some of this, but what would you say sort of in disaster coverage, I guess, both in the acute phase as well as maybe in the recovery phase, um, maybe start with what are some of the things, what is, what is most salient for disaster coverage? What are the things that, you know, you're most likely to, uh, uh, that's really attractive for reporters to, to cover and, and why do you think that is? Hmm. Well, I think, you know, the personal, one of the hardest things about this type of coverage is marrying the the personal with the bigger conversation. So, you know, you hear those narratives of this individual family that experienced something um, and they then need to figure out if they don't know already what the status of their home is, they have to figure out the status of their work. Do they still have jobs? Um, You hear a lot of coverage batted around if there's an industry that's really specific to a place Mm -hmm. like, you know, the, the Florida citrus industry, people really identify that with that place. So there's an assumption that like, Oh, people will want to know about that. Oh, you know, or, um, if you think of in again, in central Florida, there was already an influx of, uh, people from Puerto Rico before hurricane Maria hit. And now that's, um, obviously, going to be happening in a much different pace and a much different scale and sort of this place already had some housing issues. So how is that changing, um, just taxing and, and changing the dynamics in, in central Florida for families there and also for, you know, public agencies, the stories I think people might be attracted to most as reporters are those that, that, you know, that really do present themselves as stories that have a narrative, like, Mm -hmm. You have to understand if you're talking about a specific place, what was going on in this place, um, you know, when the disaster hit and then how did this coming in affect that? So if there's, you know, again, a specific agricultural industry or um, or tourism, you know, obviously a lot of disasters are are happening in coastal areas. So we talk about the impact on tourism, um, interruption and in employment, um, something where people's lives are just the most changed from what they were before and um and that and then sort of giving a sense of how those individual people might navigate the path ahead um that's i think like those the human stories are going to be the ones that that people are most interested in covering and that i think one of the reasons reporters are interested in covering those is because we assume that those are the ones that also uh, have the most impact on readers or listeners or viewers, you know, that that's what people care about are the people and what's happening or happened to them. You know, it's, uh, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier too, that one of the challenges, right, is sort of marrying these, these deeply personal stories with sort of larger frames of what's going on and larger trends and larger, maybe more esoteric policies. And so I'm just mm-hmm. re- replaying in my head all of the disaster articles I've read over the last 10 years and sort of, um, um, but I am, you know, I, I, now that you say it, sort of really recognizing those stories that start out with a very powerful narrative of a family and then sort of scaling to that, well, there are, you know, X number of families just like that because of X, Y, and Z. And, and um, so, yeah, I, but I, and I also kind of along those lines. So I think, you know, like you mentioned, the, these personal stories um, uh, are very um, effective and uh, very engaging. Um, what parts of recovery, and I know you've done a lot of recovery, and you talked a little bit about this too, are um, more difficult to cover, um, but maybe are important to cover, but they're just sort of tougher to get placed or tougher to, to get into? And, and, um, and why, why are these things so, uh, so difficult to cover? Well, I think sometimes, um, you know, in, in after Hurricane Katrina, I really saw something that I've seen reported after so many disasters since then, which is, you know, a, a real surprise at sort of the ways that types of relief that are available, types of resources that are available are are not necessarily aligned with any one family or one individual's or one community's needs. Mm-hmm. So there's continuous um just sort of grief about that you know like here this agency doesn't do this uh you know people seem to be surprised that when you are a victim of a disaster yes you call and get your fema number right but you don't get a caseworker mm-hmm. um you don't get an individual assigned to you you call every time and you give your number and you get different people every time 
And, you know, even though that's been the case for even since before Katrina, um, it's like the frustration with things like that gets reported over and over again, like it's new every time. Mm -hmm. And and it is new every time. I mean, it's it's definitely like it doesn't get any less (laughs) every time. It's it's the same level of, of frustration every time. So you, so you take something like that, an individual expressing frustration with, with FEMA and the time they're spending on the phone and the ways that they have to explain things that they've already explained over and over to a new person. So, you know, you can predict that you might get a source like that in a story. So how do you, how do you go about then like saying, okay, why, why is that? And FEMA on its side is going to say that they've made great changes that, you know, maybe they're staffing call centers differently than they used to, um, that they're improving their service and that they're really trying and, you know, they're, um, they're doing this thing differently and, and that thing differently. And they've really, uh, made progress, for example, on, um, wait times for calls perhaps, or they've added, uh, say, you know, in a Spanish language in a place with has the high amount of Spanish speakers where disasters hit, they've added more Spanish language services or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really hard to understand, like t- to sort of mesh that any one individual's experience and their frustrations with the agency saying that it, that it's getting better because it, cause that both things are true. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think like that middle ground, like, okay, how do we give people answers, even if they're not satisfying answers, but how do we fairly assess um, the efforts that any one agency, and, you know, FEMA is just one example, or, or any one company or the insurance industry, you know, how do we talk about the insurance industry and whether it's um, delivering on the promises that it's made to its constituents? Um, yeah. And then, and then just the flow of money, honestly, these numbers, the numbers that get thrown around are like the distance between stars, you know, Congress approved X hundred million dollars of relief for, you know, X federal disaster. I mean, is that a lot? Is that enough? Like what, how is anyone supposed to know (laughs) if that's an adequate amount or whether that will, you know, do what a community needs it to do? Yeah, the, the center that I work, the National Center for Disaster Preparedness at Columbia University, we, we call that the denominator problem, right? Where we focus mm-hmm. on the numerator where, hey, we built 100 houses. Well, how many are needed? <laughs> you know, there's mm. there's a billion dollars available. Well, is it if it's 100,000 houses and 50 billion that's needed, then, then you know, what is the context of that progress? Um, and I know you mentioned as well, too, sort of the... Uh, you know, the, the, the point of interaction with the individual is with this call center, but what's behind that, right, is what um, a colleague of mine in the federal government refers to the Jenga of federal agencies that layer on top of a disaster <laughs> and all mm-hmm. the different mm-hmm. pathways of funding. I was down in um, uh, Texas in uh, the Rockport area and um, talking with somebody down there at one of the relief camps, and they were talking about uh, it was a, a very, very large piece of funding that was approved federally. Um, I, I can't remember the total amount off the top of my head. And it was something where everyone was excited down there because they were saying, you know, oh, all of this money is now coming through the federal government. And then um, the person we were working with there said, uh, took a deeper look into the numbers and said, none of that money's coming here. It's all earmarked for infrastructure mm-hmm. in Houston. Um, and so even this, uh, sort of, like you said, following the money, where's it going? What's it really intended for? And a lot of times it's really, you know, restricted by the regulations, by the authorizing legislation and, and sometimes even by the politics, but I can see that be hard, being harder to, um, trace back, um, if it's that call center frustration or that, that individual perspective to trace that back up. Well, it, it moves slowly. I mean, mm-hmm. the pace of, change and progress on those fronts is practically glacial, even as the need is, um, is only increasing and, and only kind of getting the, the needs are not only increasing, but they're coming along more one after the other, after the other, after the other, you know? Mm-hmm. So if you think of the number of disasters that any federal agency is actually managing at the same time, the aftermath, the different stages of recovery that these communities are in, I mean, you don't actually close the books. Yep on a disaster until many, many, many years later. So, you know, even around the 10 year mark of Hurricane Katrina, a lot of the stories were, oh, whatever happened to like, okay, where did the road home program wind up? Like, 
how much money did it wind up giving to homeowners? Um, did that work out fairly for whom and, and, and for, you know, not for whom, who did it not treat Mm -hmm. fairly? Um, and so these are, it, it just gets, it's so fast. It's so fast. It's so fast when the disaster is approaching, it's happening, that immediate need for shelter, food and clothing, that sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs are people getting their needs met when people aren't getting basic life needs met. That is news. And then, and then when, you know, people start to get some kind of a rhythm now, whether that's adequate or not, and whether certainly whether that's what they had before or not, you know, it's not it's not really news anymore because the people themselves get inured to it. People mm-hmm. themselves get used to, oh yeah, I've been staying with my sister for eight months, um, and they just are are there. I mean, there was a piece on the wildfires in Ojai, even as these new fires rage in California. Ojai was a year ago. And there are so many people living in a trailer on their property who don't even have the permits to start rebuilding their homes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, expectations change. People start being able to live with challenges, with trauma. And then it's harder to kind of like remember what it was like before or have some sense of what you expected because your own expectations change so much as an individual going through that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's a that's an important point too. Is these things kind of get normalized, even though the consequences mm. are sort of ongoing. Um, and uh, I wanted to touch on also that you know, as um, I was looking um, for um, actually a, a, someone else I was talking to into the disaster relief fund, and so FEMA has monthly reports from the disaster relief fund in spending, and you still see money from um, I. I I can't remember how far back it goes, but you'll see open cases from um, Superstorm Sandy and from, you know, years and years ago of money that's sort of been encumbered and uh, but still hasn't been fully spent out or is still being spent out in phases as well, too. So you're right that it's it, it is um, very, very slow um, in terms of the way it comes out, which um, isn't always a bad thing. Obviously, you know, the need is ongoing for so long. Um, and I think also we gravitate towards the federal government, but really once the federal money comes in, it's handed to state and local entities mm-hmm. and sort of creating almost like this uh, uh, additional complexity on sort of where to find where it's at and who has it. Um, yeah, you know, after the Baton Rouge floods, uh, so many people hit by that did not have flood insurance, mm-hmm. similar to a lot of people who went through Hurricane Harvey. And you know, that there's just a huge gap there. If you didn't have flood insurance, I mean, really, how were you going to rebuild your home? Because you're just not going to be covered for that. Um, and so the state said, you know, we'll be getting special funding for the many people without flood insurance to aid them in rebuilding. Well, I mean, that, that took well more than a year before any money mm-hmm. actually, you know, you have to create a fund to receive that money. You have to like get it appropriated federally. You have to then create a mechanism that satisfies. I mean, you, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. <laughs> sure, sure. But as a report, as a reporter, understanding, wow, the steps. I mean, the bureaucracy is almost cr- bureaucracy is the enemy of narrative in yeah. a way, right? <laughs> it's like doesn't make for a good story. You're sort of waiting for the funds to be appropriated. I think that's one of the challenges is that the steps are so incremental um, that you know, they don't add up to a big picture picture in any, in any way that can be reported on kind of all at once, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, so in, so in a way that's why it makes sense that people wait for big marks, like a one year mark or a two year mark, because all right, by then maybe you have like something to say, you know, we can, we can measure something, but, um, for local communities, I think those twists and turns are important, even as hard as they are to stay on top of, and, and even knowing, like, all right, which state officials are, are even in charge of this request? Um, how is it going? Are they staying on top of it? And as a journalist, just by asking questions, sometimes you put momentum behind things that, um, that you know, you don't know if it is, but maybe it causes somebody to check in on something that they weren't going to check in on otherwise that particular day. But if they know that there are reporters... Um, who are going to be asking them, I do think that that can help people want to have something to say because they know someone is expecting an answer. Yeah, I I mean, I think that that's a great point um, as well, too, on just kind of um, 
kind of the oxygen that that uh, um, coverage can sort of provide to the process to uh, uh, kind of fuel it either politically or, or to create public awareness and things like that. And again, I mean, just the challenges of, you know, as we're talking through sort of the budgetary process and, you know, there are these really, really... Um, important moments in the most boring of contexts right like mm. <laughs> committee votes yeah. and things like that so um but but it seems like there there you know is potentially a pathway there to sort of give the context of what it means in terms of uh, of uh, uh, the lives of those affected the survivors of the disaster now now if a journalist is interested in doing something like this if they're sort of working within their newsroom and I'm, I'm speaking more sort of generically within the business mm. um, how do they pitch this to their editors or their producers what are the kinds of um, questions that they're going to get maybe some of the challenges that they might face but um, um, how, how does it how does a reporter sort of pitch something like this I mean, I remember in October of 2005, you know, just a couple of months after Katrina, uh, hearing an editor of a national program sit in a journalism conference and say that he didn't want any more pitches about Katrina, yeah. that he was done. Uh, and that was just <laughs> like, wow, already you're done a couple months in and you're you're just done. You don't want to hear any more pitches. OK, all right. Um, you know, a lot of it. I think one of the problems is that to an editor or, or a producer um, of a show, the stories sound so similar. Okay, what's different? I mean, even mm -hmm. with the wildfires here in California, yes, the extreme damage and the um, extreme trauma that these communities are going to face and are facing, obviously, right now, okay, that in itself is a story, but what how you know as the weeks and months go by what is different about the last fire um and i think to be frank when you when you come up with a question like that well, okay what's different well i mean all right then think maybe one level up um maybe it's not what's different but actually what's similar mm -hmm. and can we really report on patterns that are emerging of of a bigger variety of not just the anecdotal of this family or this community, but is there a bigger narrative emerging about disaster readiness, you know, that we can look ahead to next time? What responses does um, the 2017 season of, of hurricanes or the 2017 to 18 year in wildfires, what conversations does that require us to learn to have that we're, that we're not having? Um, yeah. Yeah, and I, I um uh, I was just gonna add too, you know, I think a lot of times um, you know, in the emergency management side and the um um you know, disaster research side, we can complain about the lack of coverage. Um and I think that there's kind of this assumption, um uh, sort of on my end uh, uh, of the field where, you know, if there's just more coverage it'll lead to more attention. Um mm. and, and I wonder how much of it is also um uh, you know, there's a there's a business aspect to this as well, too, right? You have to produce stories that people are going to read and then people are interested in. And it's not necessarily like just because you report on it, people are interested in it. But if attention wanes, that there's there's got to be some balance to that as well, too, right? Yeah, I mean, in New Orleans, we started at WWNO, the NPR station there, um, this coastal desk effort in which okay, what that meant is we're making this a, a beat. You know, reporters mm -hmm. have beats. They're traditional ones. You know, City Hall, uh, the police, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, if you make if you make something like, um, in this case, coastal erosion, the health of the coast, including the economic health of it, the ecological and biological health of it, um, the future of it, the infrastructure that we might need to implement and fund to uh, manage it, mitigate coastal erosion you know that if you make that a beat my god there was so much there because all of a sudden you're bringing together everything from the seafood industry to shipping to um water management and an international community of river delta mm. managers and officials you know and it and you you kind of put your arms around it as a thing to understand and i just think there's a lot of power in making something a beat and i don't feel like disaster recovery or preparedness really and I guess bundled all together you call that resilience I don't think that that has emerged as a beat in and unto itself that like anyone is putting their arms around in a holistic way and 
if that were to emerge, that could really help journalists be in communication with each other so that, you know, okay, when your community is uh, facing a flood, you understand that there are journalists who have the toolkit to cover this, have covered it in the past, and there's sort of conversations there about the storylines, the things to look out for, the people to talk to, like, oh, you know, even that as a journalist, figuring out which agency is in charge of what, you know, you don't have to do that groundwork every time. Like, there should be some way to get a better collective understanding about that. The, the way that if you're a cops reporter, you know to call the public information officer, you know. Um, so I, I think in, in that sense, they're, they're in terms of, of learning, of moving this forward, there are just a lot of fronts to attack it on. You know that's a that's a really um, I, I mean you just blew my mind. <laughs> so the, uh, <laughs> I, I mean I, I mean obviously I, I don't know much about <laughs> sort of the way reporting is structured, um, but this whole notion of the beat and the idea of being able to sort of break down disaster recovery into different component parts as there's policy angles, there's survivor stories, there's um, chasing the money, and even chasing the money has state components, local components, private components, federal components. Um, that there's just a lot of different ways to attack it and more bite-sized pieces to kind of sustain interest that um, uh, uh, I hadn't even thought of before. And so I, I um, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> I'm sold on it as someone with a, Great. you know, no influence whatsoever. <laughs> You've got my endorsement. <laughs> um, but but I think that that is is true, right? Is that the um, you know for something as complex as as disaster response, but particularly preparedness and recovery that's so nuanced, um, you really need a way to break it down into more bite-sized components that are digestible, but also compelling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, to keep it from just being either a story about, you know, this person, this family, this charitable organization doing this type of assistance, or, you know, this giant number of congressional appropriations and you know, this uh, complicated web of agency alphabet soup and numbers to call, you know, and, and like, that's, you're right, just filling in those pieces can only happen really one at a time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's one of the things I know uh, with Marketplace and sort of listening to the stories as well, too, I'm always astounded by um you know, in like a 90 second or a two minute story to really get deep into something on how um, I know there's this uh, story a uh, little while ago on um, how the, the tariffs um, and the trade wars would impact disaster recovery and the costs of that. Um, it's mm. just one example of something to sort of take a take a look at, look at the context of it. Um, but, um, so it's uh, I mean, it seems like that there are sort of a lot of models there that can kind of lend themselves to that. But it's, uh, I think, a really, uh, really interesting idea to sort of, again, sort of uh, reduce it down into these component parts and be able to look at each one. Um, yeah, sorry, I'm still uh, I'm still reeling from just uh, my mind being blown from that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's too if, if for journalists. It's about coming up with a good question to answer. Yeah. That's a lot of what the work of journalism is. I mean, that's kind of what a pitch is. What's what's something that I don't know that I think I would like to know, and if you would like to know it, probably a lot of other people would like to know it too. Um, and if if you can't find the answer, then that kind of gives you your assignment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, um, sort of shifting from the, the, the role of sort of the journalist within media, um, I'm curious your thoughts as well, too. I know, you know, within our center, the, the, where I work, we do a lot of op-eds and things like that. And we've done a few projects to do some, you know, engaging with the media and press releases, things like that. So I, I, and I'm curious sort of your thoughts on the role, you know, if, if we want better coverage of disasters, what is the role of both disaster professionals and even ordinary citizens to actually engage the media and sort of, uh, you know, help shine a light on, on potential good stories, good things to pitch or, or even to uh, contribute content. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I mean, God bless the op-ed writers. It's a, it's a tough job um, to come up with something that is universally appealing, but then specific enough to, to give some examples and make a case. I mean, I think, I think op-eds can be really powerful and probably more powerful, the more specific and then yet also universal they can they can be right that's kind of the art is mm -hmm. using a case study or or several case studies to really have a specific point a specific 
needle that you want to move in a certain direction and, you know, only the right amount for 800 to 1200 words. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think pitching those op-eds would be great. I'd love to see more local, um, experts taking that on, you know, more local emergency managers or city administrators or, um, nonprofit leaders taking that up, identifying an issue that could be better, uh, and taking the time to sit down and organize your thoughts on it and put them into something and, and put them out there. I mean, that said, uh, it's always nice to have a great editor. So yeah. if you if you don't have a super strong local paper, um, I would also say, yeah, but be being guests on your local talk shows, whether those are you know radio or local television, keep the drumbeat going. Definitely, it does, you don't have to wait for the one year mark when someone asks you to be on. Um, if you've got something to say and, and what, what are their things to say? There are findings of studies, um, but there are also just anecdotal impressions. There are, there are updates on how things are going. You know, you don't have to wait for someone to write to you and ask you to be interviewed. I, I think coming up with things to say at, at regular and quite frankly, unexpected intervals is, um, a good way to just keep things on the page, in people's ears, in front of people's eyes. Yeah, and, and when we do uh, op-eds too, and I know we come from sort of an academic powerhouse, and so it's a, mm, but right. it, but in terms of sort of getting them placed as well too, there's always this question on who do we want to see it and where is it most relevant? And I think that that's something where, you know, on the one hand, getting something in the New York Times or the Washington Post or these large national publications, uh, uh, it gets a lot of attention. But mm. if you're really looking at sort of affecting change among elected officials, even among congressmen and senators, um, to have it in the local paper that their constituents and more importantly the voters read is that a lot we found a lot of times too you can get a lot more attention from an advocacy perspective by having it in a local publication than a national publication um, because again the uh, you know a congress uh, congressman or congresswoman um, is elected by their district not by the uh, mm-hmm. national constituency and so something in a uh, a smaller local paper um, is definitely on their, you know, clippings and their read sheets every morning, whereas something, you know, buried in the the Hill or the New York Times, something like that can be very useful and very important, but um, uh, for other contexts, but uh, uh, so, that, uh, yeah, so and preaching to the, the preaching to the choir problem there, like sort of the, the echo chamber problem of everyone just talking to each other and not bringing um, people down the chain and up the chain into the conversation. Yeah. And, and, and in terms of engaging the media too, you know, I've kind of noticed, um, and, and I don't know if it's just because I'm watching how people uh, represent their agencies to the media more now because I'm more interested in it. Um, but it was interesting, I think, seeing Brock Long talking to a lot of the different media outlets throughout the various hurricanes, um, really seeming to try to educate what FEMA is and what FEMA isn't. Um, and, you know, that's a whole separate conversation on sort of what FEMA should be and, and you know, uh, how much can they, can they kind of do this. But I thought that that was also a really interesting way to um, kind of take the opportunity to, to have these discussions to really sort of break down. I mean, some of the examples I can think of is when they had um, – uh, a lot of complaints about FEMA's role in Puerto Rico, and, and he would break down on sort of, well, FEMA brings it to the ports, but it relies on private and state-managed uh, distribution systems. And if those aren't functioning, FEMA doesn't have the authority to and things like that. So it seemed also that just um, having um, uh, uh, also being able to engage the media to, to sort of help clarify these things and help help explain this complexity um, in a way that's understandable and digestible also uh, helps illuminate some of the nuances of disasters and some of the complexities. Yeah, it, it is. I thought um, two things come to mind. One, I just saw today on Twitter um, someone decrying the lack of shelters for fire victims here in California and their immediate you know, place to point a finger was, where is FEMA? Mm-hmm. And it's like, we don't, you know, federally, there are no federal shelters. That's not, you know, that's just not how it works. They work with local officials, local officials, decide where to put shelters is my understanding. Um, and that that's like, you know, it's, it's, it's an understanding doesn't solve the problem, but if you're going to point the finger, like try to figure out where it makes sense to point it. Um, and if there do need to be changes, 
with how things are handled, if the answer is so unsatisfactory that it that it clearly points to a direction for change being needed, then, you know, what are the steps for that change to happen? The other thing that comes to mind is um, the news in New Orleans a couple years ago that the city had succeeded in its effort to um, negotiate the flood maps with FEMA and that a lot of places that were going to be considered in the flood zone and require flood insurance no longer would. And this was reported you know, by the city itself as really good news and quite frankly by a lot of local press as really good news. And there was an outspoken academic, you know, not from New Orleans, which in New Orleans being from there or not from there is a, yep. a bigger deal than almost anywhere else I've ever experienced. And who just wanted to test this notion to say, hey, this is actually like a really complicated thing to change the flood maps. And um, it, if it's not giving an accurate picture of the risk, then then it shouldn't be celebrated as a good thing or a victory. Um, and I thought that was a really important perspective and it took some guts for that person, again, not from there to come out with this academic point of view, but it, it added to the conversation, a voice that wasn't being heard at that point. You know, another, I I think just great point in that, uh, you know, being in an academic institution too, we're always sort of torn between, especially being an Ivy League, New York City based (laughs) institution, right? We know that there's a Mm. certain cachet that comes with that, but there's also a certain, um, uh, uh, um, you don't get it, you know, you're you're not one of us kind of thing. And I always look at it and I, I, I do, I suspect it's probably similar, um, uh, across a lot of fields is that you know we should are obligated to give the best information to the decision making process but ultimately it's a democratic decision making process that's based on rooted in local primacy and local decision making with federal assistance and there are certain things we we may or may not agree with but it's not ultimately our decision to make only ours to inform um but uh, uh, but th- that's where, you know, I think uh, just this whole conversation and why I've really been, you know, grateful for having this conversation around um, uh, the role of the media and the role of just making sure that the best information is out there. And, and like you said, this sort of reflex to blame FEMA, um, which I don't mind doing if FEMA's to blame, but if FEMA's not to blame, let's be angry in a productive way. <laughs> <Who's>, uh... <laughs> <laughs> let's be angry in a productive way. Yeah. That's a good line. Yeah. Very good line. Thank you. <laughs> so, um, um, but yeah, so I mean, I, I know that there's a lot more to talk on this. I know we're, we're looking at ways also to, uh, you know, sort of further the, the covering recovery discussion. Um, and, um, you know, it's been interesting, too. I mean, I think in some ways we're seeing um, in some cases, more robust reporting on disasters, but still very, um, you know, it's very difficult in those intervening times between the six month and year mark and between the one year and two year. Um, you know, I guess um, just one more question I'd have for you is, um, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of disasters now, right? Um, we're seeing a lot more than we normally see for a variety of reasons. Um, do you think this is going to make it harder to cover recovery um, just in the volume of sort of acute disasters and the number of sort of simultaneous recoveries going on over the next few decades? you think it's it's going to create more interest among people since it's affecting more lives and more people and maybe generate more empathy? Or do you think maybe it's just going to be so normalized or create, you know, a lot of noise out there um, and uh, just sort of fatigue with hearing about these things? Uh, what do you think the next, uh, I don't know, five, ten years hold for us? Wow. Yeah, definitely more people interacting with this process or lack of process for recovery is going to bring more attention to it. On a local level, I think it could probably get more politicized. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, even with these fires in California, now granted, we have some unique political circumstances and many accounts, but I don't know that, for instance, questioning whether something would be declared a federal disaster or not was like on the table Mm -hmm. before, you know. Um, And it feels in some ways that there are some, some emerging discussions about, well, how does this really work? Is this can we really afford this writ large as things go forward? Um, can the government afford to provide the relief that it used to? Uh, if if there are more and more disasters, is everyone going to get that? What I think still stands at about $10,000 of immediate relief from FEMA if they are found to qualify. That is, that is going to add up. 
Um, so those could be some interesting and really challenging conversations that emerge in coming years. In terms of attention paid to things, I definitely think nationally we cannot even keep track of everything that's going on now. Um, I mean, just think of the storms that have hit this year. I feel like the coverage of the one-year mark of Harvey, Maria, and Irma was practically swept under the rug. You you didn't mm-hmm. um, you didn't get a nearly the coverage you got of Katrina. That's for sure. And as things normalize, you know. Yes, we pay more attention to them in some ways because more people are aware of them and we pay less attention in others because they're they're less um, they're less outstanding as a unique event. You know, Uh, it'll be interesting to see. I think the accountability factor is hard because it's hard to stay focused. Um, You know, it's going to be hard for anybody trying to figure out the aftermath of Florence to like really get the attention of um, their own audience of uh, the federal officials. You know, I think all kinds of things will happen very quickly and with perhaps less discussion or debate than in the past because um, people are just reeling with the number of events to keep track of. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I know I could keep you on for hours sort of talking through this, but you've got sure. some uh, <laughs> other work to do as well, too. But, um, but uh, you, you know, you've done so much great coverage for this, and there's so much great work sort of coming out of the work that you're, you're doing. Um, so uh, how can people learn more and sort of follow the work that you're doing and, uh, and kind of keep tabs on what's going on? Sure. Well, uh, at, at Marketplace, I primarily oversee two things. One is a podcast called Make Me Smart, and... We don't take up um, questions specifically of disaster relief and disaster recovery so far. Stay tuned. Maybe we will. Um, And then on Marketplace Tech, we are going to start in the new year. That's a daily broadcast and a podcast hosted by Molly Wood. We are starting a series on technology and its use in combating climate change. And uh, I feel like that's, that's got some related links to what we've been talking about today. Um, And other than that, you know, the work of the Coastal Desk at WWNO continues. I'm no longer there as the news director, but they do excellent work. They lead a weekly discussion of coastal issues uh, between not just at the radio station, but a few other media outlets that are covering those things there. Great. And we'll throw some of these links up in, uh, in uh, the, the podcast description as well, too. And just, I mean, thank you so much for talking through all of this, for sharing your perspectives um, and, and really just uh, making us all smarter about, <laughs> uh, about journalism and disasters. Thanks, Jeff. Anytime. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. And thanks to Eve for taking the time to talk uh, through all of these uh, uh, different complexities with disaster journalism with uh, with all of us. Uh, if you like the show, if you like what we're doing here, give us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you download this podcast. Uh, if you want to be a guest on the show or keep the conversation going, you can email us. We're at disa- uh, disasterpoliticspodcast at gmail.com or keep the conversation on twi- going on Twitter. We're at disasterpolitic. Thanks again for joining us and whatever you're doing out there this holiday season, stay safe out there.